I'm excited about this morning. I, I told we have, at 10:30 we have a volunteer meeting where our res kids teachers and our volunteers for the morning and um, just whoever's here gets together and just prays for the morning. And I, I told them, man, I'm I'm nervous. I'm nervous today. I've, I don't, you know, I've been speaking in front of people since I was in eighth grade, and so I. I don't get nervous. I'm not nervous to speak, but I'm nervous about the content of this message. It's like I'm, you know, I'm opening a, a, a part of my brain that I've kind of kept to myself uh, for, for a year or two. So um, this is an important morning in the life of our church. My goal this morning is that uh, as we bring Multiply to a close, it'll officially close next week, but next week will be a sort of special morning, as you'll see. Um, this is really some of the last heavy, heavy teaching of Multiply. As we bring it to a close, we have to wrestle with the question, so what? You know, why does this matter, and how does all that we've talked about over these last three weeks, how does that inform the way we're going to plant churches, the way that we're going to plant the gospel, uh, the way that we're going to live as a church moving forward? And this morning is an attempt to answer that question. Before we dive too deep into the sermon, though, uh, I want to stop and just, I'm going to pray briefly um, because our UC students are back, University of Charleston, uh, Holly, Jackie, and, and I helped, uh, and Cedar, sorry, Cedar, if you're out there, probably mad I didn't say his name, uh, helped students move in on uh, whatever day that was, Thursday, Friday, um, helped kids move into their dorms, and we're meeting some students, and a lot of our students this morning are at the student activities fair, uh, it's from 11 to 12.30, so at Wells, I don't know if I got to talk, talk to Virginia Moore about why she scheduled it during church. I don't know, but I'll deal with her later. Um, so a lot of our students are there at the Student Activities Fair, and some of them are manning a, a Fellowship of Christian Athletes booth, and, and I lead FCA on campus. And so uh, really quickly, I just want to pray for them and pray that they will um, cross paths with, with students who are ready to hear the gospel. So let's pray quickly. God, thank you that we are gathered this morning. Thank you that several of us are not here, um, that they are, um, in their words, in their text message, sowing seeds uh, for the rest of the semester and the rest of the year, and perhaps for the rest of eternity. So I pray that you will um, give them boldness as they, as they interact with students. Uh, I pray that students will come, not just to ours, but to the BCM and other campus ministries, that they will um, be uh, impacted by the gospel. Um, so uh, be with Ryan, Shanley, and and maybe even Ritwick, I don't know who all is there, but who all is there, Lord, just pray that you will um, bless them and, and empower them uh, in these moments. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks uh, for, for doing that uh, with me. Um, we've learned in these last few weeks that church planting should be incarnational, uh, it should be apostolic, and it should be natural. And if you're, if, you're, if you're new this morning, or if you're not sort of having all those sermons fresh in your mind, you might have a question, what in the world does that mean? Well, let me seek to answer that question very briefly. God created the whole world to be filled with his goodness. Every living thing was born to multiply. Man was specially blessed by God to steward this goodness, to rule over creation with God as his vice regent. But we thought we had a better idea. Man turned from God and sin began to multiply on the earth, and it seemed that the plan of God had failed, but really the plan of God was just getting started. A second Adam would come, a second Adam to reverse the curse, to redeem man from the effects of the fall. And in the second Adam, as Isaiah prophesies in Isaiah 53, the will of the Lord would prosper. Jesus, this new Adam, wrapped himself in flesh, and as Eugene Peterson says in his message uh, translation, moved into our neighborhood. God incarnate has come to man. Jesus is the new prototype for humanity. Just as all are fallen in Adam, all can be redeemed in Christ. In Christ, we are a new creation. Jesus has recaptured God's plan for creation, and the Christian life is about living life God's way. We are citizens of a better king, and we live out that citizenship in the everyday stuff of our lives. The church grows then as the essence, so the stuff of the Christian life grows in us. Church growth isn't so much about brand expansion, but it's Christians living Christianly and new Christians coming to faith. That's important, right? Church growth isn't about just brand expansion, but Christians living Christianly and new Christians being formed. 
the apostles give us a pattern of church planting, of gospel planting, of planting the gospel in a place among a people and then gathering those people together in new churches. It's a quite simple pathway that we see in the New Testament for the growth of the church and the multiplication of the church. Everyday people share the gospel with others and new communities of faith are formed. That briefly is what I mean when I say church planting is apostolic in the pattern of the apostles. It's incarnational. Jesus wrapped himself in flesh and moved into our neighborhood, so we too move into the neighborhood of others. We live our lives among others, present in their lives, and it's natural. Healthy things simply grow. But if we know anything about the human life, healthy things don't grow quickly. Healthy things take time to grow. Healthy things may not grow as quickly as we want them to, or as church consultants would tell us they should grow. But nonetheless, even if it's over the course of generations, healthy things grow. This morning, I'm going to offer two truths and give a, a, a sort of cursory outline of the model that we're using sort of today and going forward as a church that thinks about planting the gospel among new people and seeing the church harvested. My biggest fear for this morning is two things. The first thing that I'm so afraid of and have prayed against a lot is that this would be esoteric to you, meaning it would just be uh, like you're sitting in a seminary lecture, and that's not the goal. That's not the point. So please, please, please fight with me. Um, fight with me. I've done a lot of fighting in the text already. Fight with me to get to a point where we're, we're listening and we're thinking about these truths practically. Second fear is that you would think, oh, this isn't for me. This isn't for me. Yeah, I, I don't need to know how the church grows. I don't need to know my, you know, the church's role in growing the church. I don't need to know that. Mason might need to know that, or Mason and Nick might need to know that, or maybe he should share it with some guys he mentors. But other than that, I, I don't, it's not for me. I just believe wholeheartedly that throughout the course of human history, the church has grown not when professionals grew it, but when everyday people grew it. And if we want to move from institution building to movement making that leads perhaps to institution building sometime down the road, we've got to recapture the reality that this good news of the gospel is for everyday people like me and for you, like me and you, not for just a few trained seminarians. So this is for you. I'm going to say two statements, and I'm going to unpack those two statements, and then after that I'm going to hit the whiteboard, I'll hit the whiteboard some during that as well, and to sort of draw out... Um, the model that I'm advocating for this morning. The title of today's sermon is An Interdependent Body of Bodies. An interdependent, hyphenated, interdependent body of bodies. Statement one that we're going to look at, God desires a unified church. God desires a unified church. Statement two we're going to look at is the church is an interdependent body of of bodies. The church is an interdependent body of bodies. Look with me in John chapter 17, as Seth read for us uh, just a moment ago. Uh, John 17 is known as the high priestly prayer, and uh, John's gospel is, is my favorite gospel. It was written much later. Um, in John's gospel, he sort of, the, the facts have been laid out there already. And so what John seeks to do is more than simply retell the facts to um, sort of provide his own historiography, like the story of the facts. So he is not just saying, this is what Jesus did, this is where he went, this is how he went there, but, but he's actually giving some more spiritual application to these parts of the life of Christ. And so John focuses on the content of this prayer that when we read in Mark, it's just kind of like, and he prayed, you know, and he, he prayed, and he going on. And so John's focusing on this high priestly prayer, and there's a part of the high priestly prayer that I think is profound, especially for us, some 2,000 years removed from this setting, and, and we pick that up in verse 20. He's been praying uh, for uh, his disciples, for his followers, uh, and now he says in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. I, I just think that's profound. I, Jesus is, so Jesus is praying, and he says, I, I don't just ask for these only. So the things, Father, I'm praying for aren't just for uh, the 12 people around me and the, the larger handful that, that are following us together. But I'm praying for everyone who will believe in me through their word. 
And, and what we have in the Bible is a collection of the writing of the apostles in the New Testament, and that is the word of the apostles. And so when Jesus is praying that everyone who be will believe in him through the word of these people, that's including all of us, right? That's including everyone throughout history. So Jesus, as he's praying, he's not just looking around him at the people who are immediately following him, but he is praying a prayer that's going to be answered some 2,000, and if the Lord would tarry, maybe 3,000, I have no idea, years later, that Jesus has this eternal perspective, and he's praying, and he's interceding for, for you, and for me, and for our church and for believers' churches all over the world, he's praying that, that they may be one. Is his prayer in these moments, maybe if he were a, good, a better evangelical, his prayer would be, Lord, I pray that their doctrine will be so lockstep and perfect that they'll have it all figured out. Or did he pray, Lord, it's going to be 2,000 years of struggle. I pray for political power so that they can stand against Nero. Or did he say, Lord, I pray for um, resources. God, they're going to need a place to meet. <laughs> you know, They're going to need to pay their pastors. And God, I just pray now that you'll open the doors for finances 2,000 years. Some of those things are good things. Some of them might not be good things. I don't know. But the point is they're not what Jesus is praying for in these moments. In, these mo in this moment, in this critical moment, Jesus is praying for the unity of those who will believe this message. And what he's doing is he's tying this plea for unity to gospel witness, right? Verse 21. Verse 20 is, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their world. The Russian lady in 1852, a young lady in the Congo in 1998, a family in Rome in 450 AD, a bunch of people in Charleston in 2018. Whoever would believe, I'm praying for them also, that they would believe. Then verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe you have sent me. Jesus says, I pray that they'll be one, just as, Father, you and I are one, so the unity, the community that we share, we're looping them into that community, so that by virtue of our being one, they might see, who is they? The outside world. The outside world might see that I am the one that you've sent. I think it's just profound that gospel unity is tied to gospel witness. Gospel unity is tied to gospel witness. We are to be one with our brothers and sisters because we're one in God, so that the world may believe that Jesus has been sent by God. This is a text that we kind of gloss over a lot, and we're so used to, we'll talk about this in a moment, to denominationalism, and there are some great things about that, and in some ways I'm a part of that. But I think we need to take a step back for just a moment and think just very basically, very profoundly, not thinking about the way things are per se right now, we'll deal with that later, but think about this reality that God desires the unity of the church, and that's a good desire. That God desires the unity of the church, and you know, without getting into all the weeds that we will have to get into if we were to keep going on this path, but before we get into those weeds, God desires the unity of the church, and if Jesus prayed for it, I believe the Father will answer him. I'm going to hitch my wagon to the prayers that Jesus prayed. I think if it's, more, if it's important to Jesus, it's important to us. You might ask, has the church ever been unified? Yes and no, right? Yes and no. The church has never been completely uniform, but uni unity doesn't mean uniformity. So for about a thousand years, right, the church kind of worshiped as one body, there were um, bishops throughout the east, bishops throughout the west, and in 1054, I think, there was a great schism between the east and the west, and so the east sort of became, the, the center of that was over in Constantinople, the center of the western church was in uh, Rome, and so you've got these two great Christian empires that develop, and then not 400 years after that, a German monk named Martin Luther explodes onto the scene and nails a bunch of theses on a door in Wittenberg, Germany, and with that movement, he sparks a movement that'll last another 100 years, and that movement that will last another 100 years is going to continue to fracture and fragment and split the church into a million pieces. And so we see there's unity for about uh, a thousand years or so, but there's differences. And when you study those time periods, you see that their theology was not uniform, that differences were bubbling to the surface. But there was a sort of interdependence 
among the churches. In 1054, there was a great schism. In the 1500s, there was another big split. And then today, we live in a world that seems fragmented beyond recognition. Verses 22 and 23. I pray that they will be one. No, sorry. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them so that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me, he says it again, and love them even as you loved me. Check it out. The glory that you've given to me, Jesus is saying to the Father, the glory that you've given to me, I've given to them, they may, that they may be one. His life, the life of Christ, revealed God's glory perfectly. And that life that he has lived, he has given to his church. He has given to his people so that the world may know that just as the Father loves the Son, the Father loves the church. Isn't that a powerful truth? That just as the Father loves Jesus, the Father loves us. God's love for us is wrapped up and tied to his love for his Son. See how much the Father loves his church. Now, I said a moment ago, we're so far from the unity that he desires of us. Just for a second, let's ignore that. Let's dream. Let's look at how things could be, not how they are. Guys like Steve Jobs would change the world because they chose to see what no one else saw. And I'm not Steve Jobs, and none of us are Steve Jobs, but perhaps this morning we're willing to flirt with the boundaries of the possible. Imagine a global church, a church united by the message of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his impending return. A church that's interdependent, a church without strife, a church without conflict, a church where you can't go from one church to another church just to duck church discipline, a church where the pastors will actually talk to each other within the same room, a church that looks like the life of Christ. Now, bad news, we're not going to see this tomorrow, and we're not going to see this in my lifetime. But there are some baby steps we can take in our church life to begin fighting for unity because it matters to Christ. Step one, I think we can begin to see it when we stop majoring in the minors and start, stop minoring in the majors. Stop majoring in the minors and stop minoring in the majors. Meaning, let's recover the essence of the Christian life the Trinitarian faith, the exclusivity of Christ, the hope of the gospel. Let's recover these glorious, simple, basic truths, and let's glory in those truths. Not glory in the reality that in this church you have to wear this, in this church you have to wear this. These people like alcohol. These people think alcohol is the blood of Satan. These people are mostly Republicans. These people are mostly Democrats. These people are this. These people are that. Let's, let's stop majoring in the minors, and let's start majoring in the majors. Let's stop being tribal, and let's start being charitable. I think we can begin to see small steps toward unity when we take our brands and our tribes and we lay them at the foot of the cross. Here's the biggest one. I think we can begin to see unity in us and among us when we stop differentiating ourselves from the church down the street and start differentiating ourselves from the world outside. We can see unity when we stop differentiating ourselves from the church down the street and start differentiating ourselves from the world outside. I don't care how Res is distinctive from Bible Center, or how Res is distinctive from Emmanuel, or how Res is distinctive from this church, so much as I care about how Res is distinctive from the world around us. We are the called out people of God, not sent to call out other Christians, but sent to be life in dark, dead places, and to call from life, from death to life, those who Christ loves and is called to himself. I think Jesus desires the unity of all his people, and we can do our part in getting there. I think Jesus desires the unity of the people in what you'll hear Christians refer to as the Big C Church. The Big C Church is the church universal, the church without time and space. Is there precedent for the church being understood as this one big body? I think there is. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says, I will build my church, not simply I will build my churches. Ephesians 1, 22 Paul writes, and he put all things in subjection under his feet, him being Jesus, and gave him, being Jesus, as head over all things to the church. That Jesus is head over his entire church in Constantinople and Rome and in all points in between. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, the most convincing in my eyes, there is one body. There is one body. 
Paul writes, and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. There is one body and there is one spirit. The bottom line, as we examine this reality, this statement, this text, God desires a unity, unified church. And unity and diversity is a powerful thing. We'll talk more about that later. This is background. This is context. This is stuff we're building on. These are ingredients that you might not taste in the model, but they're there. Holly's not here this morning. She's trying to do a new hobby, making sugar cookies, and uh, her first batch was salty. (laughs) Salty. And that salt was an ingredient that you could taste profoundly. The dogs didn't really want it. I'm going too far. Let's reel it back in. But I want this sermon to be like that statement, to be like the kind of salt you put in the sugar cookie that tastes like God intends, right? Like you don't really taste much of the salt. And I think that truth that God desires a unified church is like the salt in the right kind of sugar cookie, meaning that it's there and it's serving a purpose, but you don't necessarily see it and you're not like needing a glass of water afterwards, okay? Man, that was rude. Um, <laughs> sorry, babe, you've been the best year of my life. Statement two, the church is an interdependent body of bodies. Oh, boy, this is going to get me in trouble with my seminary professors. The church is an interdependent body, right, big C church, of bodies, little c church. Now, Paul, I believe, in the New Testament makes abundantly clear that the church, there is one church, right? There's one faith. There's, but he also uses the word church, ecclesia, gathering, to refer to multiple gatherings of people, smaller gatherings of people, regional gatherings of people. And we can see that in all kinds of places. But I've just picked three at the end of Paul's letters. So if you're taking notes, just jot these down. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time there. Colossians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. He's ending his letter to the church of Colossae and says, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea. For our context, that's about 10 miles away. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And the church in her house. Just briefly, I mentioned this, I tweeted this last night as I was kind of going over um, what all we were going to say. You can't read the New Testament and not see how important women are in church planting. I mean, in Acts chapter 12, I think it's uh, 12 or 13, right? Peter gets arrested, and then Peter goes to Mary's house, which is John Mark's mom, and there were believers gathered in her house. And then another text we're going to see, that they're in prison Aquila's house, uh, a married couple, that there is a church meeting in their house. So we see that these people who are taking the sort of leadership and uh, risk of allowing the believers to gather in their homes are very, very often women. And I think so many of our methodologies for church planting revolve around men that I just think it's a profound uh, truth. So anyways, Paul is saying, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea, the church over there, and to Nympha and the church in her house. So when he says the church in her house, that means he's thinking about a, a group of Christians who gather together in a smaller you know, setting in, in a house. Then he says that when this letter has been read among you, so once you've read this letter, have it also read in the church of Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. He says, I want this letter that you're reading now, I want you to take to those brothers and sisters, and I want you to read it there. And they have a letter too, and I want that letter to come to you guys, and I want you guys to read that letter too. We'll talk about that in a little bit. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 19 and 20. Paul says, The churches of Asia send you greetings. The churches of Asia, the gatherings of people throughout Asia, send you greetings. Aquila and Prissa, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in our Lord. So he says, the churches throughout this region send you greetings, and particularly this church. Some scholars argue that Paul belonged to that church while he was there. Uh, This church particularly uh, sends you greeting. Romans 16, 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. All the churches of Christ greet you. Again, there's this idea that the church is one thing, 
but simultaneously, it's these smaller bodies of believers. And we see that really easily and quickly and clearly in these sort of introductions and sort of farewells of Pauline epistles. So all the churches send their greetings to you. Now, um, how do these churches relate to one another? That's my question. How do these churches relate to one another? So how does the church at Colossae, the gathering in this house, relate to the people in Nymphus house? How do these small groups of people relate to one another? Because I think that'll help us learn how we should begin relating to one another in our context as well. There's a word that Baptists love that I just can't stand, and it's autonomous. Autonomous. Can you imagine if someone would have showed up with that letter from Paul and said, brother, you, don't, you, you can't read that letter here because we're an autonomous local church. Would never have happened. Because they didn't see themselves as these individual things with their own brand, their own bylaws, their own way of viewing the world, their own distinctives, their own these things. They saw themselves as an interdependent body of bodies. There was a profound unity in the way they understood their call. They clearly don't think they're autonomous. They clearly don't think they're competitors. They clearly believe that the apostles' words carry equal weight to all of them. They clearly believe that the Spirit of God is the arbiter of truth within them. And I want in these moments to consider their interconnectedness. I think I'm going to hop on the whiteboard for this. Uh, Here we go. I think I'm going to consider their interconnectedness, right? I'm going to steal this chair from... uh, this person. I want to consider their interconnectedness. Oh, good light work up there. I didn't even prepare that. That's good. Y'all are getting ready for the theater up there. I want to consider their interconnectedness in two terms, right? Through their formation and through their authority. So let's consider their interconnectedness as we see in their formation and their authority. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 11. You know, Acts 11, uh, we can begin sort of quickly here in the, uh, oh, there it is. I lost my Sharpie. We can begin in Jerusalem here, if you would. So let's uh, think about Jerusalem for just a moment. All right, Acts 11. I'll start in verse 16. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, first Christian deacon, first Christian martyr, if you're a deacon, be aware, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, Greek speakers, and also Greek speakers, Greek cultural, cultural Greeks, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. It's interesting, Barnabas was known as an encourager. They didn't necessarily send their best teacher, they sent their best encourager. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas says, I know just the guy, my words added. Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, Saul being Paul. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, Jerusalem is right here. It's as close as you can get without a passport. And what happens is there's a persecution that arises. And so people began fleeing. We know that I think in Acts 2, it says, what, 3,000 people were added to the number. So we have a church of at least 3,000 Uh, Probably a a whole lot more than that, especially if you begin counting their families. So there's a persecution, though, that arises. And when we read through Acts, we saw that sort of escalating tension uh, in the uh, narrative. Um, There's a persecution. I'm going to have to pull this this way so y'all can look at what's the art as well. I'll get y'all. Don't worry. So the persecution arises, and that persecution sends Christians all over the place. 
And uh, the text says they went to these different places. Uh, let's focus on one of those places. Let's focus on Antioch, right? So in Antioch, in Antioch, some people began speaking the gospel to Hellenistic people, so Greek speakers. So a new people group is hearing the gospel. A new people group is being engaged with the gospel. What does Jerusalem do, right? Jerusalem finds out that there is a church being planted there. So Jerusalem sends Barnabas to Antioch. I think that's significant, right? There are some sort of multi-site gurus who are going to argue that um, Antioch is a site of Jerusalem. I think that's anachronistic. Anachronistic means it reads old categories with our ideas, or it reads our ideas with old categories. I think it's anachronistic. They wouldn't have thought of themselves as one, like, organizational entity, but they would have definitely thought of themselves as one expression of the same body, part of the same family. It's a more essential definition. It gets to the heart of what it means to be a Christian. They would have seen themselves as one people, one group of brothers, and one group of sisters. So the Jerusalem church sends Barnabas to Antioch. And then Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, verse 27. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem. So we get some more folks, some more officers of the church. So they send Barnabas, then they send prophets. They come from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. Luke adds an editorial comment. Verse 29. So the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. So, prophet comes from Jerusalem, comes to Antioch, foretells of a famine. Antioch decides that they're going to do something about it because these are their people, these are their brothers and sisters, and they're the ones who are going to take care of them. And so they decide that they're going to send relief, financial relief, spiritual relief, emotional relief, they're going to send relief back to Judea, the broader region. And they did so, sending it to the elders. So we know there are elders here, elders governing this church. We know there are elders here being formed. They send those stuff to the elders in Jerusalem. So I want to see a couple of things from the very beginning. That from the formation, the Antiochian Christians were a part of something bigger than themselves. The Antiochian Christians, even though they were largely Hellenistic and these people were largely Jewish, were able to see past cultural barriers and see deeper, see to the heart, and understand that they were brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, chapter 12, look with me. Uh, Peter's imprisoned and rescued. Herod dies verse 25 of chapter 12, the very last verse. Look with me briefly. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So they've been here doing what they've been called to do. Guess what? They're coming back to Antioch. Now, let me erase this briefly. So from the formation of the churches, we see that they are one. Now, let's build on that idea a little bit more, that they are an interdependent body of bodies. Now, let's, let's go back to Antioch. So, let's do, let's do this. Let's say Jerusalem here. Boom. Church in Jerusalem. Church at Antioch is planted. What is their relationship to one another? Well, they're different, right? They each have their own elders, but they're also one. They understand that they're one body. That manifests itself in taking care of each other. Now, our team is chilling here in Antioch. Let's pick up in verse 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. While they were committing to the small things God called them to do not trying to expand their name across the empire while they were being faithful and obedient. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me who? Barnabas and Saul. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. 
Now, I'm not going to go through the rest of the first missionary journey, but what we've launched here is the first missionary journey of this missionary team, and they're going to go to different places. If you, you have the maps in your Bible, this will be the first time you've ever used them. Uh, Paul's first missionary journey is back there, and so they'll go to different places, right? They'll go to Cyprus, uh, an island, right? Then they'll go to um, Pisidia. They'll go to different places, and they're going, and they're, they're sharing the gospel. They're living among the people in some capacity at varying lengths of time, and they're gathering them into churches. Now, what's important to note is that they go to these places, and with the whole world left to reach, what do they do when they've kind of gone through with several of them? They go back. They go back. They go back through and end up in Antioch again. We see that at the end of chapter 14, skipping way ahead. So look with me in chapter 14, verse 27. Well, verse 26. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that had been fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith of Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. From the beginning, this is an interdependent body of bodies. Formation, check, we're almost done, hang in there. Now, their authority, their authority, something happens because when you get superficially incompatible people and they start living together, problems arise. Cultural issues come up. And so some of the Hebrew Jews were those of power, those of influence, those of wealth. After all, they were the big church, right? They were the south. They had their influence to exert over the rest of Christendom. And they think, well, these Gentiles are coming to faith. Well, they gotta be circumcised. Well, they gotta learn what it means to be Jewish. And so what happens is they convene a council in chapter 15, the Jerusalem council, and they're going to figure it out. Do they need to be circumcised? What does it mean to be a Christian? What should we sort of uh, put on these people? Now, they get together, and James and Peter, they stand up, and in the power of the Spirit, they give these impassioned sermons, and they come to the conclusion that no, you don't have to be Jewish culturally to become a Christian. No, you don't have to be circumcised to become a Christian. Why does that matter? Because there's a problem within the church that they disputed together at the Jerusalem Council, and the text says sort of by the Spirit, through the Spirit, it seems right to send this sort of ruling down. So this ruling comes from Jerusalem to Antioch, and it's binding there in Antioch as well, that the apostles and the power of the Spirit have come to this conclusion. Now, I say all this to not advocate for sort of a, a more Presbyterian polity or Episcopalian polity, but to say that the church, in the New Testament at least, is unified. The church in the New Testament is one, and we see that from their formation, and we see that from the way they conceive of authority. That the elders led the church among them without being lorded over by some bishopric or some presbytery, you know. They led the church among them, but there was an interconnectedness, an interdependence, an interrelatedness between all of these churches. Now, why in the world does this matter? And if you got lost, come back home and let's finish the sermon together. Why does this matter to us? Because I think it gives us the language and it gives us the picture that it takes to understand what Rez, I believe, is being called to do. So, let's think extremely practically now about this week, about next week, about September 9th, I think understanding the church as an interdependent body of bodies helps us plant churches apostolically. See the full circle moment here? Understanding the church as an interdependent body of bodies helps us plant churches apostolically like the apostles did helps us plant churches incarnationally by just embodying the gospel among a particular people, not overthinking it, nothing too fancy, nothing too expensive, nothing too difficult, nothing too flashy, nothing too glamorous, nothing too huge, no expectations through the roof, helps us plant churches incarnationally, and it helps us plant churches naturally. It helps us understand how we can go to a place, live among a people, share the gospel, 
And if a new church is planted, amen. If, a new, if an existing church is strengthened, amen. I think this truth that the church is an interdependent body of bodies can help us understand where we're going. So on September 9th, Resurrection Church will move to the Capitol Theater. It looks just like this. I would say, I'm just going to put a steeple on it. <laughs> on September 9th, Resurrection Church is going to move to, I guess I didn't need to circle that, whatever. We're going to move to the Capitol Theater. And we're going to begin planting Risen City Church. Right here on 1410 4th Avenue, Charleston, West Virginia, 25387. So, what's this relationship going to look like? Remember, interdependent body of bodies. I think, I believe, we can start to think through what it means to be an interdependent body of bodies at a micro level among us. I think we can sow the seeds of gospel unity today that perhaps someone will reap when we're all dead and gone. I have a question. What generation are you living for? Am I living for this generation? Or am I living for the ones that are to come? I believe that God's calling us to be a, an Antioch, if you will, right? Or like, uh, maybe even like a Jerusalem church in the model that we just saw. To leverage what we have, and just as they sent Paul and Barnabas, we want to send missionary teams And just as Paul and Barnabas weren't going to a fully put together church, they were going to a community, they were going to a people, so too are our missionary teams going to a community, going to a people. So my hope is that we can start planting churches that look like the neighborhood. Anyone ever been to the DMV? Yes, yes. Purgatory might not be such a bad idea. You go to the DMV and you see all sorts of people because we all have to go there. How rich you are, how poor you are, you all have to go there. It used to, I used to use Walmart in that definition, but now Target's a thing, so you don't see all sorts of people at Walmart anymore. But I still go to Walmart because I will forever remain faithful. Um, <laughs> Um, when you walk into the neighborhood, when you walk into Kmart, when you walk into somewhere, that's kind of what the west side looks like. If you walk in here, this ain't really fully what the west side looks like. Why do I even care about that? Why do I even care about that? Because I care about thinking about how the gospel is contextualized among a people in a place. I don't want to send 60 people here to the west side and have a pop-up church already made. I want to send a group of people who are going to love their neighbors, who are going to get jobs with their neighbors. See, also, this, these churches look like the neighborhood. These churches are cheaper because we're not paying full-time pastors to go and do things, right? We're sending missionary teams who live in the everyday stuff of life to go into a neighborhood and to plant their lives and to plant the gospel and there's interconnectedness with this home church, with this sending church. Here we have money, right? We have um, spiritual support systems. We have leadership development systems. We have missions partners. So small churches can be a part of God's global mission. They can give. They can go on the same mission trips. There's shared leadership, shared authority, shared all of these things. So my thought is, let's think outside the box for a second. So on September 9th, what's happening is we're having our first service at the Capitol Theater. And what I hope is the first morning of a church that seeks to be an interdependent body of bodies all throughout West Virginia. Because in the future, what I want to do is I want to send teams to small towns 
that need the gospel. I want to send these teens to hard neighborhoods that need the gospel and don't have microwave churches that are going to work in those neighborhoods. I want to send teams to these places to plant their lives while they're connected with this body. To send missionary teams who are equipped Equipped not to understand the ins and outs of Christian subculture, but equipped to read the culture to which they're going, to plant their lives in that culture, to get jobs among those people, and to stop seeing the scoreboard as big church, but start seeing the scoreboard as new friends who hear the message of Jesus and who respond to the message of Jesus. If we want to be the biggest, most powerful church in West Virginia, this ain't the way to do it. But if we want to give ourselves away for the sake of a movement, I think this will help us get there. Now, I'm not going to just defend this model. That was my first sermon that I threw away and wrote a different one. (laughs) Because the Lord impressed upon me, who are you trying to impress? Who are you trying to impress? Who are you trying to, like, they're not out here judging your sermon. I want to equip them to go and share the gospel. I want to equip them to go and be the church. So if you want to critique it, let's critique it together after church. (laughs) Now, I will say this. I said it in week one, but I want to say it again now. 12.08, finish up in just about two or three minutes. The model is not the point. We're going to call Risen City Church a parish. Because that word parish, I think, I think that word parish helps us tie together gospel, people, and place. I think this is something that the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church get right a lot more than the Protestant or than the sort of evangelical free church wing. This idea that when Farmer is the pastor of this church on the west side, he's also like a pastor of the neighborhood, right? Like when there's conflict between families, who are you going to call? When there's conflict between leaders in a neighborhood, who are you going to call? They used to call pastors, now they call counselors. I want to get back to the point where the leaders in these communities are men and women of God. That they care for the people in their community. That they see the people of that neighborhood as the people of their parish. Think about this. If you're going to be on the core team of farmers' work, and that's a, a few of you, a few units. Your worship leader is not yet a Christian. And this is true for resurrection as well. I'll get there in a moment. The deacons in your church, the deacons in our church, aren't yet Christians. They're people who live, work, and play all over Charleston. They're people who you work beside, people who you live beside, people who you go to the gym with, who you're going to meet and you're going to share your life with. And over the course of years, you're going to share the gospel with, and they're going to come to faith, and you're going to find that God has gifted in those people the very things he wants in his church. Because you're not building his church, he's building his church. Isn't it freeing to know that I don't have to figure it all out? That's freeing for me, probably not so much for you. It's freeing for me to know that the resources God has for reaching the people around us are already here. We're not on a race We're not trying to be the next any other church in the area. We're trying to be who God has called us to be. Could this all not work? Yeah, it could not work. For now, we're going to say, Risen City is a parish of resurrection. So extremely practically speaking, what's going to be happening on Sunday nights here isn't like sit-down church service. It's inviting people in for meals. It's figuring out ways to interject yourself into their lives. Worship team, come on up. It's gathering people. It's doing Bible study together. It's figuring out what the church is going to look like. And while you guys are in that stage, you're going to be coming to resurrection on Sunday mornings because this is one church sending out this missionary unit. Perhaps there will be a day when this parish stands on its own. Perhaps it'll always be a part of resurrection. For now, our hope is that it'll be an interdependent body of bodies, meaning it's a parish of resurrection church. You might say, well, that sounds a lot like multi-site. It's similar. But here's one big difference. I love a lot of multi-site brothers, but I think as a whole, ideologically, not on a personal level, but ideologically, they've underestimated the power of the brand, and they've underestimated just how consumeristic we are as a people. 
People are hungry for banners to fly under. People are hungry for brands to lead. And I want that banner not to have an R on it per se. I want that banner to have a cross on it. The banner we fly under is not simply the resurrection banner. The resurrection we fly under is the banner of King Jesus. I want resurrection to change the world and no one know we did it. That's why I'm not multi-site. Principles are similar. But I want to be a kingdom people who just like a little mustard seed is planted. Two things are going to happen. One, the sermon was a flop. And you're going to be like, that was the longest sermon he's preached in a while. I used to preach long sermons. I've shortened them a lot. Or, or it can be sort of the shot heard around the world sermon for our church. It can be the seed that's planted in the ground moment of our church of understanding in more detail what God's calling us to do. If you're a member of Res, if you're going to be on a core team at, Res- at Risen City, here's what I want. Be a follower of Jesus and fix your eyes on him. That was last week's sermon. Pray with me, please. Father, there's just so much we can say right now. There's so many places we can go. Uh, but I'm going to rest and, and, and give this um, sermon to you and, and trust that uh, you're teaching us how to be an interdependent body of bodies. Lord, I pray that you're raising up men and women who are going to be missionary teams sent to neighborhoods like the West Side, sent to towns, maybe like Montgomery, Fayetteville, Maybe cities like Wheeling where we can plant more Antioch-type churches. Lord, the model can change, but these principles don't. Help us, God, in these coming weeks to be obedient. Help us not to measure our success by how many people like what we're selling, so to speak, but by how many people are giving their lives to God's mission. Help us measure success not by how well we're thought of, but help us measure success by how firmly we fix our eyes on you. We're trusting you with the results. We're trusting you with this move. We're trusting you with all that is to come. Lord, I pray that as you build resurrection, that we will be like an Antioch, that we will be like a Jerusalem church, that we will continue to reach people all over this city and all over this valley, and that we will leverage that to plant a family of parish churches all over our state, God. Keep us humble and keep us close to your heart. For without you, we can't do anything, but we're not without you anymore. And we believe that the Spirit in us is more than enough to accomplish the will of God through us. It's in the name of Jesus, our great high priest, we pray.